Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions, from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science. We'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and I want to welcome you back to the part two of the interview with Dr. Alan Gaby. This time we talk about a number of different topics, but before I get to that, I have some errata, some corrections to make of what I had said in the first part, actually in the prequel of the interview. And that is just a few brief things that uh, Dr. Gaby got back to me. And I kept on calling it the Tacoma Clinic, as in Tacoma, Washington. It's not the Tacoma Clinic, it's the Tahoma Clinic. It was 23 years ago I was there, and though I knew that, I had completely forgotten. And I did slip into calling it the Tacoma Clinic. So that was on me. Sorry about that. It's the Homa Clinic. And it's in greater Seattle and a number of different locations. Also, I mentioned that I had bought the book, Nutritional Medicine for $500. You're saying it couldn't have been that expensive. I might have bought it on Amazon. I don't know. Can't remember now. But he said his first edition was $300. And as I remember it, it was considerably more expensive to have the e-booklet or the searchable database. Right now, you can get both together under $200, and I'm phenomenal, envious of that. Either way, I've had and used his reference, Nutritional Medicine, and it's been superb, very helpful in many situations when I have to go look something up. Okay, the last thing is that um, I had mentioned that Dr. Gaby read 600 journal articles a month. Well, he said, I appreciate that. But that's impossible. What he looks at, and he has certain search criteria from Library of Congress and other things, but he reads a table of contents of 600 journals for topics to follow up on nutritional supplements, et cetera, et cetera. So there you go. Those are the corrections from last time. They're minor. So now looking ahead, we're going to get into talking about DHEA, which is really pretty impressive, and labs, and iron, and a few other things. So till then, Till we talk next, enjoy. Bye-bye. I'd like to go into DHEA, and then let me give you a little context. I remember, you know, being a student in every classroom, and you're just salivating for, when I get out, I'm going to try all these things. When I get out, I hope I go to a state that has IV, which I didn't. <laughs> so much for that fantasy. But the other stuff, so DHEA was one of them. It was like one of these miraculous things, not that anybody, you know, it was with great caution. Um, the other was, I'll oh, we'll get to that later, maybe. but. Let's go into DHEA a little bit. I use it some. I have mixed results. I'm more cautious now than I probably was before. I'd love to hear what you have to say with it. I mean, I have a great chapter. 
Yeah, well, DHEA is a steroid hormone, and it is produced naturally in the adrenal glands. In males, it's produced in the testes, so about 50% is produced there and 50% in the adrenals. In females, it's produced, we think it's produced, pretty sure, in the ovaries, but only about 10% of the DHEA in females comes from the ovaries, and the other 90% comes from the adrenals. At menopause, that little bit extra produced by the ovaries seems to make a difference because sometimes when we give DHEA as a supplement, it relieves some of the menopausal symptoms. And it also, in a few cases that I've seen, uh, reversed some postmenopausal bone loss. The main area that I use it, uh, aside from autoimmune diseases, that's actually in the regular medical literature. You can treat lupus with high dose uh, DHEA. And there's some evidence you can treat rheumatoid arthritis related conditions. But the most common is when I see very old people or moderately old people who are playing their life very old, they're fading more rapidly than they should. We used to call it the dwindles. They're, they're losing weight, they're losing muscle mass, their mind is going, their appetite is going, their, their mood is going. I remember an 80-year-old woman came in. I don't know why she came in, but she was depressed, and all she could talk about was whether her will had been filled out properly. And so I measured her level, serum DHEA, measured as the DHEA sulfate, because that's easier to measure. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot more of that in the bloodstream. And I typically compare it to the level in a young, healthy adult, uh, because we know it declines with age. And the question is whether the decline is a normal age-related factor, or whether it's related to some of the uh, things that happen to us as we get older. If the level is below normal for a young, healthy adult of the same gender, Mm -hmm. you have to compare because men have much higher levels than women. But if it's low compared with young adults of the same gender, I will always consider a low-dose supplement. Now, for me, low-dose is uh, 5 to 15 milligrams a day in women, 10 to 20 milligrams a day in men. And that's a lot lower. They use typically 50 milligrams a day in research studies. And that's more than the body makes. And when you're dealing with a steroid hormone, I don't think you want to be in most cases giving more than the body makes. But anyway, so I put this woman, I can't remember, it was either five or 10 milligrams a day. And she came back six weeks later. And uh, she had joined the fitness club and she uh, had signed up for (laughs) Carnival Cruise and she was happy as a lark. And uh, wasn't talking about her will. Another uh, patient, I never actually saw this patient. It was actually uh, a the, the father of one of the naturopathic students who I think was in your class. And she said to me, my, my dad is 87 and he's really going downhill and it's really terrible in all ways. He's just losing it. You know, I didn't have access to measuring his level, but I just assumed low dose DHEA is reasonably safe. I said, well, just give it a try. Put them on 10 milligrams a day for a couple months, see if it makes a difference. And a few months later, she said his life turned around completely. He put on muscle mass, his mood is better, his energy, the whole thing. So it doesn't work for everybody. I've tried it on some older people who had low levels and I gave it to them and didn't do any good, but it's happened enough. And the results were so profound that I think it's worth looking at and again, steroid hormone, get medical supervision with it. This, even though it is sold over the counter, I think it shouldn't be. I think uh, steroid hormones, they, are, they tend to be abused by bodybuilders and some people, you know, very high doses might cause prostate cancer. I think it's a very useful thing for a subset of the population. It should be a part of standard medical care, in my opinion. I appreciate that. You mentioned serum levels, uh, and you're always skeptical of using labs. Generally speaking, 
How is serum and relative to maybe urine? I'm thinking of the Dutch test, and that's one of the things that they they measure. Do you sort of say, you know, we're just apples and oranges? I wouldn't even mention them in the same sentence. Yeah, of. well, neither of them has been confirmed as a reliable predictor of who's going to benefit and who's going to be able to take it safely. I don't see any problem with checking the urine. If you do a 24-hour urine test, that gives you a fairly broad indication of how much is being made in the body because that's how much is being excreted. So I think either of those would be reasonable. And I would also say that uh, neither of them is entirely reliable, but uh, it's probably a little bit better than guessing. Yeah, no context is everything. Belt and suspenders is a good way for sure. (laughs) I'd like to get into labs in particular. We mentioned it in our correspondence. Tell me where you are in labs. I said, oh, I wonder what labs, that's another, I wonder what Dr. Gaby would think. It's like, what labs does he take? And you and you said, well, you know, actually, I don't take that many labs, just sort of the basic amount of labs that most people take. Please yeah, I mean, uh, you want to do the complete blood count. You want to do the chemistry panel. You want to know what iron status is. You want, you want to know what thyroid function, liver, kidney, et cetera. And that is what any uh, family doctor or internal medicine doctor would do. There are a wide range of so-called alternative labs have not been convinced. I've researched some of them and have been convinced that they're unreliable. Mm-hmm. There are others that I've not seen any evidence that they are reliable. So, and then you get hassled by insurance companies for running these labs. So in general, I don't think it would change my, uh, my clinical judgment on most cases on how to treat them or what recommendations to make, because I haven't seen any of those. That, now, you know, stool analysis, maybe you might find something there sometimes mm-hmm. if you culture it. But you can also be misled. Dr. Leo Galland, about 30 years ago, did a study where, where they cultured for yeast, candida, candida albicans. And what he found was, and then he treated people with antifungal drugs. And he found that having a positive stool culture for candida was a better predictor that the antifungal drug would not help them. Mm-hmm. Having a negative stool culture for candida combined with a positive he would go in and scrape the rectal tissue and he would look at it under the microscope. And if he saw a certain type of the, the hyphae, they called it, if he saw those from the yeast in the, in the cells and they had a negative stool culture, that was the best predictor that they needed antifungal drugs. So nobody tells you that. And even that wasn't 100% positive. What he found was that when you are suffering from candida, your body is fighting it and your body is producing an inhibitor and it's excreting that inhibitor into the the bowel, and therefore you can't culture it. You can't culture candida because your body's blocking the culture. And then there's this other thing, the the caffeine clearance test. I don't know if anybody's using that anymore. It was designed to determine how how well your body can detoxify things. So they they saw how, uh, how you metabolized caffeine, which is fine, but caffeine metabolism is only one of the 57 detoxification pathways. So that doesn't tell you anything about the other 56. And then there's the neurotransmitters. They do urinary neurotransmitters, and they purport to tell you what herbs and other supplements you need to take. But the problem is these neurotransmitters do not cross the blood-brain barrier. So what's going on in the outside of the brain may be totally different from what's going on inside the brain, and you therefore can't come up with any conclusions about what they need. So what they did is they had four different uh, types of treatment protocols, and everybody got better. But the problem is the treatment protocols are helpful for people. And it didn't really demonstrate that basing the treatment protocol on the test 
produced any better results than just randomly throwing a dart at the wall and trying one of the treatment protocols. Same thing for blood type diet. The, all the blood type diets take everybody off of sugar. Three of the four diets take people off of wheat. Uh, one of them takes them off of dairy. One takes them off of corn, which are all very common allergens. So statistically speaking, a lot of people are going to get better if you do want any one of the four blood type diets, but that doesn't prove that a specific blood type has to do a specific thing. So basically, I do a good history. You got to talk to people. There's no substitute for asking as many questions as you can. I'll give you an example. This whole thing about thyroid, I, I think a lot of people have what I call sub-laboratory hypothyroidism. It's subtle. It doesn't show up in the blood tests, but they have multiple symptoms. And you do a physical exam, their Achilles tendon reflex comes back very slowly when you hit it. It's supposed to come back like that. It comes back like that. And that's a classic sign of low thyroid. You do what they call an empirical trial of thyroid, which is an educated guess. You give them thyroid hormone, and all these symptoms get better. They do it safely, and their cholesterol comes down, their blood pressure, all this stuff. If I had to look at the 50 greatest responses I had in my medical practice, at least a fifth of them would have been thyroid hormone therapy in people who had normal blood tests. But anyway, now I forgot why I brought this up. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're on labs. They go on any tangent you yeah, want to follow. We're on um, labs in general and saying how it wasn't a close correlation a lot of times. Yeah, so so that's another one. But there was something else. It may come back what I was trying to say. But okay, I, I have a tangent to go on too. And that is that um, the other thing that Alan's class was the elimination diets in your book as well. And I was so impressed with that. I go, wow, here's a guy who knows all about all these other things. And yet he's talking about the elimination diet, really hands-on diet. So actually, I got called up on the carpet because I work for a group initially, and I want my own practice, and that I wasn't prescribing as much supplements as they were hoping that I would for the profit of the group. And I said, well, I'm, I'm focusing on, they have to I get, ask everybody for a seven-day diet diary, and then we look on it, and I look at wheat and dairy, and I take away the allergy elimination diet, and there wasn't any need for supplements after that relative to their chief complaint. And so it's like, that is so underused. That was so powerful that it was like, now, looking back of everybody I've ever seen, you know, regardless of chief complaint, I would say, get them off dairy and wheat, or am I talking gluten and casein? Pretty much the same thing. You would have such, it would half the symptomology of any given case and maybe remove it completely. I just thought I'd insert that because you. Yeah. Well, one of my uh, medical school professors, he, he was very well known. He he was highly respected. He wrote a couple of the chapters on infectious diseases in Harrison's internal medicine textbook. He was straight conventional medicine, but he was so wise. And one of the things he said was the better trained you are, the fewer tests you will need to order and the fewer medicines you will need to prescribe. So uh, I will honor what you just said, because you identified the cause. Mm -hmm. The cause in this case was a specific allergen in the diet. Not only did you identify the cause and save the patient money, but you also allowed them to take control of their health, which, you know, if you're giving them a bunch of supplements, they got to keep coming back and getting reevaluated and all that stuff. So that's good medicine. So I, I appreciate that you're doing that. I do remember what I was talking about now, because I said you have to do a very good medical history. Normally, there's this thing they call the review of systems. There's this huge checklist. You go down the list and you hope they all answer no for every one of them because that saves you a lot of time and effort. And you put at the bottom review of systems, non-contributory. That's what they taught us to do when, our, when we wrote up the case. Anyway, 
the review of systems can often be very contributory if you don't rush through it. And, and the example that I like to give, I was at a retreat with a bunch of medical students who were trying to learn holistic medicine. And there was a 24-year-old woman, medical student, and she was my guinea pig. I did a history on her. And I said, uh, do you have fatigue? And she said, no. I said, how many hours a night do you sleep? She said, 10. 10, that's a lot of hours. What happens if you sleep less? She says, oh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> and then I said, do you have constipation? She said, no. I said, uh, do you consume a fiber supplement or eat a high fiber diet? She says, yeah, I take a fiber supplement. I said, what happens if you don't? She says, oh, I can't go to the bathroom. And then finally, I said, do you have dry skin? And she said, no. And I said, do you use any moisturizing cream? And she said, yes. <laughs> and I said, what happens if you don't? She says, oh, my skin is really dry. So this was an amazing example of you do the first round of testing, of a questioning, and you get all negative answers and you just proceed to the next thing. So. By doing the additional follow-up, I was able to identify three very subtle but possibly important clinical aspects in her case. And when I checked her Achilles tendon reflexes, they were delayed. So here was a case of hypothyroidism that would never show up on blood tests. It would never even show up by her, quote, chief complaints. But she had it, and I didn't give her thyroid because this was just a demonstration. But there are so many people who have symptoms that they don't even think of anymore. There was one woman who came in because of recurrent infections. And I asked her if she's tired or depressed and things like that. She said, no. And I didn't follow it up. But I put her on thyroid hormone for various reasons. And the chief complaint of recurrent infections, that cleared up. But when she came back, she was so happy. She said, you asked me if I had fatigue and depression. And I said, no, because I didn't know what it was like to feel other than the way I did. My life is so gloriously happy now. You know, you talk about iron, uh, not a lot, but it's it comes talked about your dad with Dr. Permoto's interview. And I think it is so underutilized both as a test. It's almost like the boring part of labs. Obviously, you do iron, but you do ferritin and saturation and TIC yeah, yeah, and so on. Pretty yeah. standard. Do you value one portion of that over the other? I mean, do you sort of say it's, you know, if you have normal iron, low ferritin, we're, do you sort of say, well, you know, we're, we're kind of functioning, but we're, the boat's getting pretty empty here. I described how to evaluate lab tests, iron tests in detail in the textbook in my chapter on iron, and I reserve the right at my age to forget anything that I've written down. However, sure. what I will tell you is that none of the tests are always reliable because ferritin, for example, rises in response to inflammation. Percent transference saturation is affected by other factors, which I don't remember, but it, it's, it's well known. So what I usually do is if I'm really worried about iron deficiency, I'll measure them both and I'll take inflammation into account. I'll take whatever other factors I read in my book that, uh, that you have to look at. But yeah, in general, um, I like to do them both because you can get a better idea of that. The, the best test is a bone marrow biopsy and nobody's going to be doing that. That's yeah. the most reliable. And you try to find lab tests that, that correlate best. I would say if there was one thing that's associated with Alan, apart from hypothyroidism, it's magnesium. It's like, and we've talked about that a little bit. You talked about the magnesium oxide, but it wasn't until I reread the preface or the introduction, I think it was uh, Dr. Wright wrote an introduction, that that was a letter that you sent to him that you sort of qualified for his preceptorship or his inter residency or whatever it was. 
on magnesium. So it's been something that's been pretty close to you for 40 years. I read an article in 1973. It was called Magnesium Interrelationships in Heart Disease. And I was fascinated. They cited all this research. A lot of it was from Germany. And more and more came out. And magnesium is involved in 300 different enzymes in the body. The dietary intake of magnesium in Western societies is pathetically low. Some commonly used drugs also deplete magnesium and any kind of stress, emotional, biochemical, physical stress, causes magnesium to be released from cells into the bloodstream after which it comes out in the urine. So I think low or marginally low magnesium status is very widespread. And uh, there are many patients over the years that I saw where the only thing I did was to tell them to increase their magnesium intake, like as a first approximation. Sometimes I told them to take B vitamins with it, but it's just amazing how many people are very, very depleted. Uh, One person that I know uh, was signed into a nursing home with Alzheimer's disease. That was the diagnosis. And uh, she was uh, related to uh, one of my employees. So they asked me to go take a look at her. And the only thing I could see was uh, that she'd been on Lasix for many years. Lasix depletes magnesium. It's a diuretic. Blood levels of magnesium are often normal, even if the body's depleted because most of the magnesium is inside the cells. So based on her history of taking Lasix and the symptoms began after she started, I figured I would supplement her. And uh, so uh, every time I drove by the nursing home, I brought a syringe full of magnesium and gave it to her intravenously. And after about six or seven of these, her mental status was perfectly normal. And she says, what am I doing in this nursing home? That was a dramatic case. I've tried it with others, you know. I mean, it probably works only in a minority of cases and only if they have true magnesium deficiency. But many other people with chronic anxiety within uh, a week, oral supplementation with magnesium, it's better. And uh, migraine prevention, give IV magnesium. You can knock out a migraine attack in two minutes. You can knock out an asthma attack in two minutes with intravenous magnesium. So if I looked at... uh, the list of things magnesium can do. It's probably the the largest list for any nutrient as far as the prevention and treatment of so many different diseases. So, so yeah, there was an old joke. I don't know if it was your class or the ones after that. The joke was, if you're taking a Gaby exam and you don't know the answer, just write down magnesium. (laughs) That was our class. I think we inherited it from the class before us, though. You know, it's like, there's always a little crib sheet that goes, migrates. Right. So that begs a number of questions. One is, do we have any, rel- other than symptomology, right? We're all clinical at this point. Do we have any valid tests? Is serum magnesium kind of like, yeah, well, by the time they're serum magnesium, they're really deficient. Is it intracellular? Is, or is it um, a therapeutic trial, empirical, as you say? Yeah, well, it's tough. A lot, a lot of the practice of medicine, that's why they call it practice. Medicine <laughs> is an art. Uh, we like, to, like it to be a science. And to the extent that we have research, it is a science. But there's so many unknowns. Also in conventional medicine, a lot of the therapies that are used are based on nothing more than expert opinion in both conventional and integrative naturopathic medicine. But we have to go with what we have. Uh, For magnesium, serum levels are sometimes low when a person is deficient, but in way too many cases, they're normal. So you can't rely on that. If the level is low, you can be pretty certain that the person is deficient and sometimes severely deficient. White blood cell or red blood cell magnesium levels uh, correlate fairly poorly 
with the amount in other parts of the body. Muscle biopsy, you want to poke somebody's thigh, but nobody's going to want that done and nobody's going to want to do it. But that's pretty reliable. And then uh, there's something called a, a magnesium load test where you give an intravenous infusion of magnesium and collect the urine for the next 24 hours. And if a lot of it comes out, then they weren't deficient. And if it doesn't, then they were. But that's rarely done in clinical practice too, because it's, uh, it's unwieldy and it's expensive. And also even the muscle biopsy, which, which nobody's going to do. Let's say you do a biopsy of the thigh in somebody who's got heart failure mm-hmm. and the thigh comes out normal. That does not prove it's normal in the heart because the damaged heart loses the capacity to pull up magnesium from the blood. And they've shown that in people who have heart failure with a normal blood level of magnesium, there's only one third as much magnesium in the heart muscle as there is in a normal healthy person. So back to what you originally said, yeah, it's a clinical trial. You uh, get all the evidence you can and you, uh, you treat and you see what happens. Uh, now, I do measure serum magnesium because I want to know if it's low. But if it's not, I'm still going to treat. Okay. So for those of us living in the, the states that don't have IV for NDs or can't have access to it, what sort of oral supplement would you prefer? You've talked a little bit about like saying, don't discard the uh, magnesium oxalate because it actually has value. Do you have, do you pivot to say, this is my go-to combination, you know, chelate yeah. with... Or... I think you meant magnesium oxide. You said oxide. oxide. Sorry. Uh, yeah. But anyway, magnesium oxide, there's one study that uh-huh. says it's poorly absorbed which it probably is not as well absorbed as other things. However, I've seen six controlled trials in six different health conditions, premenstrual syndrome, high blood pressure, and a few others, where they gave magnesium oxide, and the urinary excretion of magnesium went up, which means it had to get absorbed or else it couldn't have gotten into the urine. And the condition that they were treating got better compared with the placebo group. So it may not be the optimal as far as the therapies, but it is inexpensive, very inexpensive. And also it's 40% elemental magnesium compared with 20% or less elemental magnesium for things like aspartate and gluconate and uh, lactate and some others. So you can get more elemental magnesium in a capsule, which means you have to take fewer. So I do use magnesium oxide. I like it in capsule form instead of tablet, because sometimes the tablets are coated with something like shellac and a It ends up in the septic tank rather than in your blood. Capsules are preferable for particular conditions. For example, for chronic fatigue or for muscle spasms, I will often use a combination of potassium and magnesium in the aspartate form. It's widely available. It's called potassium magnesium aspartate. And that's actually been studied for the treatment of chronic fatigue, not chronic fatigue syndrome, but chronic fatigue, which is very common. And there were about five or six studies back in the 1960s that showed that it was effective. And it was actually a prescription drug back in the 1960s. But the FDA changed the rules and said, you have to prove efficacy or you can't sell it. So the company that was marketing it didn't want to spend the money. So they took it off the market. And then the, uh, the supplement companies came out with it. But potassium, magnesium, aspartate, I typically use two, maybe two and a half grams a day of the combination that includes the weight of the magnesium, the potassium, and the aspartate. That's usually four capsules a day. And that's what I've done with people with uh, chronic muscle cramps or chronic fatigue. And uh, that particular type is useful there. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter. There's some evidence that magnesium glycinate may be better tolerated 
glycinate, G-L-Y-C-I-N-A-T-E, less likely to cause diarrhea. That's one of the common side effects. But, uh, you know, most of the time I use this whatever 400 milligram magnesium capsule I can find on the market. Gotcha. So you have no opinion on theanate, the magnesium theanate? It seems to be the magnesium du jour. Well, I haven't seen anything saying it was better, but there might be some stuff out there that I haven't seen. So uh, I can't give you a good opinion. If you have any studies that you want to send to me, then I could probably give you an opinion after that. But I go through 600 medical journals, the table of contents every month. And I also have multiple search criteria uh, where uh, the National Library of Congress sends me emails every day for things that fit my search criteria. But, you know, I probably might have missed something, but I've never seen anything that says magnesium three and eight is. And I've been doing this for for 40 years. Yeah. Looking for articles. Before the Internet, I used to go to the library and just sit there and read the table of contents of books for 10 hours. Yeah. Um, Anyway. So, no, I don't know if that's any better. That's right. I appreciate that. That's a polite way of saying no. But anyway, (laughs) with, with a big disqualification. I'm going to stop here primarily because we got through my list and I could sort of go on and on and on. And I do have three or four other lists, but I would hope that we could get, get to do this again. I think it's yeah, very, absolutely. It was fun. I absolutely do. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your, your courage, actually, of taking a different path way back when. And by the way, I know you called this an eight pound book, but I tried two scales in my in my house and I think are really closer to nine. And if you did drop this on somebody's book, a foot. It would break the foot. It's huge. I mean, for what? Four, it's great four. for smashing ganglion cysts. Uh, <laughs> so, so for your listeners, um, I can give my website, perhaps, where people uh, can read samples. That will all be put up, but for, by all means, if you oh, can, yeah, okay. they will get this information, and I'll put it both in the that's video form and podcast. That's good. It's been a pleasure, and I'm happy to do it again at some point. I certainly appreciate that. I'll keep you posted. I'll let you know how this goes, and everybody's going to know about your book. Okay, Carl, thanks. Take care, Alan. I appreciate it. See you. Bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to Dr. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they're overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. Stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.